Ladies and gentlemen, hello again and welcome back to Don't Worry About the Government. My name is Chris Novembrino and on this installment of Don't Worry About the Government, I'll be joined in the first part of the episode by Brian Halverson and then what you'll be hearing throughout the rest of the episode is a weaving together of the new YouTube-based segment, the DWATG Dispatch, which was originally intended to be about 20 to 30 minutes per dispatch and is quickly spiraling out to full episode lengths. And that just means more stuff for you because I'm finding these easy to do. I don't feel like I'm overburdening myself with any of these slates. I, you know, not necessarily going super deep, but it is allowing me to cover more topics. There's a lot of topics in today's show. I would actually be remiss to try to list them all off, and if I had prepared a list with all of them, it would be agonizing and boring. But we'll be talking about Joe Biden, and we'll be talking about the coronavirus, and we'll be talking about General Mark Milley, and we'll be talking about Beto O'Rourke and Greg Abbott and a whole host of other things on today's episode. Periodically, I'll be dipping back in, or I might add some additional commentary here from the editing room, but what you will hear is a lazy river of news through the last week here, including a segment I taped just today, Sunday, September 19th, so uh, many of you probably haven't even heard that yet because I just posted it on the YouTube show, and this will be coming out right behind that YouTube episode. So, All told, I said I wanted to play with the format a little bit. I was hearing the feedback and I wanted to come up with something that uh, was sustainable, true to self, yada yada, all these other descriptions and other things I could come up with here. Superlatives maybe? No, not superlatives. Superlatives would be like very good, great, like tremendous, like Trump says a lot of superlatives. Uh, These would be more general descriptors of, you know, things I'm trying to meet or expectations I'm trying to meet. And uh, hopefully in this new format here, which is on YouTube. So if you're not subscribed to the YouTube channel, do go there and ring that bell and smash that thumbs up button and subscribe and watch my soul leave my body a little bit every time I say that phrase. But I will say it because that's that's the name of the game here. Got to change with the times um, or the times will uh, change on you and you will just be a remnant, a remnant of the past. Who wants to be a remnant of the past? Not I, says me. All right, well, let's go to the show. Uh, joining me here is my friend, your friend, Brian Halverson. How you doing, Brian? I'll be better when I understand this is not an episode. This is not... Not not real. I mean, it is an episode of the daily version of this, so it's which episode is being one. done. Episode one, which is being done, you know, to build out the YouTube channel, which admittedly is spotty and weird for a YouTube channel, is trying to go against the grain with the algorithm, and it turns out the algorithm doesn't really care for that, so... Uh, <laughs> I, I should instead try to go with the flow a little bit and uh, put things on the YouTube channel that might actually pick up some steam because right now a guitar repair video is doing better than maybe this entire channel. So I, I gotta I gotta step it up here a little bit. Well, um, as of right now, just as far as how things are going, uh, I, I don't know if you have any family on the coast. 
But uh, I do. I was actually visiting them on the coast here this weekend. Okay, so uh, are they good as far as the storm coming in, or? Uh, they're on the East Coast. I, there oh, wasn't... that that's a whole different coast. I meant the oh. Gulf Coast. I... Oh, the Gulf Coast. Is is that? There are three coasts. You you would you yes, ask? But yeah, we, yeah, we you live know. in Texas, man. Uh, but I, my I, family I, lives on the East Coast, so when you say the coast, you, uh... I don't even think about the West Coast. I got like I got an uncle over there, so I, this whole setup is blown. But but uh, do you have family on the coast? Yeah, so I, I someone uh uh Daniel asks uh, uh uh about people uh everyone doing all right. I have some family in Houston, and uh, uh one of them just found a parking spot for their car on the third floor of the uh, Houston airport garage. So I didn't even know that that was a thing. But apparently when the storms come in, people try and get their car to the high-rise garages so that they don't get trashed as the storms come in. But, uh, man, uh, I swear uh, a lot of people... Boy, is that a sign of desperation, though. Yeah. uh, I, a lot of people just got their house fixed from the last storm. And this is, man, it seems like this came out of nowhere. And I know this isn't a talk about climate change. No, you know, so Jesus. like in, in a different segment, <laughs> I want to break down. This will definitely be, this is why we're doing the daily dispatch format is I wanted to have things where we could talk about one topic sort of laser focused. And one that I want to do in greater detail is, why the Republican reign over Texas is much more fragile than I think the national audience realizes. And the fragility of Houston and its absolute need for spending in terms of infrastructure is a, a really fantastic example of how like the Republicans in this state have been slowly losing these cities and the surrounding suburbs of these cities. And there's this radiating effect of people in these metroplexes, which make up way more than half of the state's population of nah, something like, yeah, we like business. Yeah. Maybe we like our industry or whatever, but like, no, things need to change. And these Republicans don't know how to govern in the state. So that's certainly something I want to revisit at another time. However, on today's episode, what we wanted to take a look at here is something that came out over the weekend while I was traveling and visiting my family on the coast, which is this story involving Joe Biden and announcing a new six-point plan to respond to the growing COVID-19 crisis, specifically the Delta variant and now the Mu variant. Um, A number of different alarming variants are on the horizon. And the Biden administration finally realized that they need to be doing more than they were doing. This is, this announcement of this plan is an implicit admission that the July 4th mission accomplished little moment that we had going into July 4th weekend was extraordinarily wrongheaded and that there was a major change necessary. So the plan is as follows. First, it is going to require vaccinations for all federal workers and for millions of contractors that do business with the federal government. 
implementation of the requirements for all of those contractors is definitely going to be a sticky wicket. But right now, it doesn't look like there's going to be much of a court challenge on that. Uh, any thoughts about that one? Because I feel like this one's been getting underreported, but it's actually perhaps the biggest one. Um, and we talk about what's going to happen with employers next, but millions of contractors that do business with the federal government, now all of them are going to be required to be vaccinated. And the question is, how is the government going to check to see that all of its contractors are vaccinated? You know, I, I like thinking about this from a federal level but then I'm also thinking about this from a certain governors oppose this on a state level and how they're going to want to oppose this is not going to be opposing a federal employee. They're going to want to impose this on behalf of a state employee. And I, I think this, this, the battlefront on this is too specific state by state to lose that frame on that as far as the republicans are concerned um i i think it's valid as far as just looking at this in the aggregate but i don't think this is going to be fought in that way um however valid that is yeah i'm with you i i well i think the governors right now want to fight this entirely around the employer thing in part because the governors want to start coming off as more business friendly which is the thing that they're right. having real issues with but uh, who's the employer with the federal employee right that and, you know, how, and and who are you defending yes and and to uh, that point <laughs> I, I mean when it, then on the implementation side i think the question is going to be like how is the government agency in question going to ensure that the contractor is vaccinated. And it's not necessarily that tricky. They just need to get the card, but it, it's still, you know, it's still an implementation hurdle. I want to be really clear as we're talking about all this. I was thrilled when I got off the plane and I heard that Biden was finally doing something on COVID-19. So like this, this is all wonderful. Um, next, and I just kind of keep it positive here. I, there'll no, be no, I, I'm, I'm just, as far as, as far as my my take here, this is just as how how the, I expect the Republicans to oppose this. Yeah, yeah. This is not what I hope uh, ha happens. No, no. I I, <laughs> I I I just wanted to be clear on that at the top line. I, I should have probably gotten that in sooner here. Next, we have we have the requirement for employers to provide paid time off to get vaccinated. So this is. Uh, easy uh it like there might be employers who fight this uh there might be employers who are worried about this as a precedent but the actual time that it takes to get vaccinated especially in this scenario is a grand total of maybe two hours of paid time off for each employee uh it, it is not hard for employers to meet this like i had to do this for a different job Essentially, at my employer's strong request and willingness to buy lunch and pay us for the time we were out. So I was like, dude, free lunch. I did this for the flu shot. Uh, so I don't think this is some like crazy overreach. I don't expect this to be challenged. And I thought this is another sound piece of policy. You know, if you think about this in comparison to, for instance, a state lottery, which has been done. If you were to even give more PTO for this, even though you don't need it if the outcome 
is more people get the shots because they're like, oh, all I have to do is get this shot and I get four hours PTO. Like, I would even be curious if that many more people get the shot because you give an irrationally, like, if you give someone the whole day off to get this shot, like, no, that that is irrational. But if three times as many people go get the shot, do you care? Uh, the only problem there, essentially, is that you're asking the employer to pay for it. But, like, if the government, I guess, was right. willing to pay for a half day, I, I feel like a half day is probably more reasonable given the varying pay scales or whatever. I think that's very generous, and that's exceedingly reasonable to me. You don't have to work. You're going to get paid. Go have lunch after. And, I, you know, prior to this, on, on a previous episode of the actual, like, full-length Don't Worry About the Government podcast i think it was the episode entitled sticks and carrots i talk about a whole plan of just paying people like i was against the lottery system one because i don't like don't like that it's like oh you get a chance to get money like i think that's stupid like or right. i think people can see through that i like the idea of giving people money bam right there and this is even better it's like do you not feel like lifting boxes all day right go and get the shot and and right, right now especially when we're looking at the groups of people who still haven't gotten the shot yet um, there are a bunch of people who will get in, under this plan l at least a couple of hours uh, free of manual labor to go and get the vaccine, which will be good for their health. So it's sort of like uh, it's a win-win. I like this. I, I My only thing to your point is I would rather see this stretched out to like it's a half day off to go and get the vaccine. Let's oh, yeah, give, yeah. Let's give people I, a full half day. I, I'm thinking about this just as far as a mere experiment, like w what would happen if I was legislating this, this is a half day. Uh, oh, yeah, because if I could tell I, an employee you're off at noon today if you go and get the vaccine, I think you now all of a sudden, like, man, you see, exactly. will, you see willpower bend and break real <laughs> no, quick when someone it, when says, like, all right, later, guys, I'm already in the vaccine. And here's what you do. You either say that on a Friday morning or you say that on a Sunday night on behalf of Monday morning. And you're like, that's that's when they'll do it. <laughs> you you know this. You do that for one month by the end by like that fourth Friday, everyone's like, nah, dude. Like, am I am I really gonna be the idiot who's like, I have my principles. I will work all day Friday afternoon. Like, yeah, I I I hate that people even have to be baited like this, but when you think about them in the Delta variant and kids not having the option and like at, at some point I do not care if that's the if, thing is like it stinks that we actually can't reach out to these people who claim to be moral people in a lot of cases you know who like to be moral scolds in many cases uh the fact that we can't reach out to them like on ideas not of politics but like i have a business pal and i am a hard-working owner of my own business you know the P main street if you remember a decade ago that the type of people who say they're on main, you know we got to support main street well main street doesn't get paid time off pal so i need to keep working so i can't get sick that doesn't reach them okay i you know if i tell them i work with children and many of those children don't even have the choice 
of getting the vaccine if they or their parents or both wanted them to. And they're worried and, you know, they want to stay alive and grow up to be happy adults and all these sorts of things and make it through this situation. That doesn't reach them. Okay, fine. Then, you know, look, I'm not thrilled that any of these arguments have not landed with people, but I'm also not in denial of it. And I'm really glad that the administration, in a way, isn't in denial about this. Uh, I The only thing of criticism I have with this plan is it's a little scoldy, and, and I would like it not in, in don't do this. Um, I'm, I'm glad that they're doing all these policy positions. Um, I just think you need to frame it more as a carrots thing, and it has more of a sticks tone. That's my only knock on this plan. Yeah, and I I wish before we had this chat uh, that uh, I had looked at just globally uh, of the nations who have issued mandates, what is the gold standard as far as the unfolding of the mandate? Like who has done this best? And I, I really don't have any idea on this, but uh, um, yeah. But, but uh, it's got to be Israel. Israel's probably got the best rollout on that stuff. Uh, I mean, look, there, there's a little bit of a problem with the get a shot, take a shot like thing and not just like, you know, promoting alcoholism or whatever. Um, but because uh, I my issue with it is just that it encourages people that normalcy is like just right around the corner. Whereas I think what we are now understanding with this disease is that getting a vaccine is part of a savvy regimen while we still get the lid on this thing. Uh, it's not get the vaccine and then go back out to the football games. It's get the vaccine and now you don't have to sweat when you're at the grocery store with your mask on because between the mask and the vaccine the odds are pretty good that even a COVID exposure is probably just going to ricochet off your chest and actually probably just give you some antibodies. You may have like an absolutely asymptomatic encounter with COVID um, that, that actually helps you out a little bit versus, you know, uh, if you don't have a mask on and you don't have the vaccine and exposure to COVID is possibly a trip to the hospital. Yeah. And uh, before I forget, I guess it's the, uh, the source for <laughs> to worry about the government of of directly listening to AM conservative radio. Uh, it's someone just, uh, has to do it. Yes, you, you keep no. Wait, wait, wait. You keep telling us that. You, not, I, 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 I want to be do... clear. I, you didn't let me finish the sentence. <laughs> Go on. No, no, that was it. That was the sentence. Someone has oh, to do it. Good. You keep someone telling has... us. Okay. <laughs> that was a that was a deceptively. Uh, finished sentence yeah I, uh, I i use clauses in a savvy way sometimes <laughs> sir all right so uh i have heard a lot of conversation regarding how unfair it is that there is not an ant a natural antibody test and how um uh th- this is something that uh speaks to how uh, Biden and Fauci are all in step with this corporate agenda to push these very expensive vaccines. And and this is actually relevant because this is what DeSantis is also parroting. Uh, I mean, like, you know, I'm razzing you a little bit about the AM talk radio thing, but it's useful because these are test labs for future Republican talking points that they're going to try to trot out there. And And now if you follow Hannity, he is not he's never far that far away from Trump. 
And no, I, I mean, if, I think Hannity's actually, the, the, he's, he's the greatest yeah, example, right? right. Because that's Hannity's I, relationship yeah. with Trump was so tight that when Michael Cohen listed off his clients, he had exactly three, and one of them was Sean Hannity, and the other one was Donald Trump, and I don't remember who the third guy was, but he was inconsequential. But, like, no, Sean Hannity... No, Sean Hannity and Trump talk on a regular basis and never has the relationship between talk radio and um, the actual political realm been tighter. And like this anti natural antibodies talking point is a great example. Right. And I, I do love DeSantis going like, oh, they're not using the science on natural antibodies. All right, Ron. Like, well, if we're going to talk about using the science, can we talk about using the science then? Yeah, and... Um uh the bone to pick that i have with the republicans or sh should i should i go ahead and do this now or yeah go ahead i okay. mean yeah, yeah yeah go for it in my opinion uh i i looked this up uh there is a medical marijuana bill in, in florida and there are people in florida who are should be quote unquote protected under the mar medical marijuana bill who are being fired from their job for consuming marijuana. And so I am looking at this within the lens of they're going to take away our jobs, uh, sort of vaccine speak. Uh, and this is something where if, if you really want to, to claim that, whenever you do pass something like medical marijuana, you don't let people get fired as they as they use that legislation, but you do, uh, and that seems to be okay right now as there are a growing number of cases of people who are getting fired for this in Florida. The marijuana situation is one that I want to touch on in greater detail at, at a later point because I think it's underappreciated, especially by people who live in blue states, how absolutely unacceptable the federal, like, well, some states have marijuana legalization, some states don't have marijuana legalization patchwork of laws is. It would be like if gay marriage was only legal in some states but not other states. Uh, it's actually, it, that's probably the best analogy. Like that period of time where it was only legal in some states but not in other states. And so like your rights were really kind of suspect and, and any number of things could happen in, depending on what state you're in. And like it's not actually a good system in a country called America to have these like 50 states with all these different varying laws. Uh, to your Going back to the employer thing, I think this is where Republicans have really been struggling. Is, is, is it employers' rights and the right to work and the right to fire an employee whenever they want? So if they want to fire them over marijuana, that's fine because that's the employer's right to. Or, or, or for example, the, a vaccine. If the employer wants you to get vaccinated and you don't want to get vaccinated, the employee has or the employer has the right to do that. Or should maybe just maybe employees have rights and yeah. the Republicans don't really have a coherent like worldview on this. And like, that's becoming kind of apparent. Um, you know, as far as a, uh, a, uh, an olive branch on both sides, uh, in, in the spirit of all of these, uh, 
these conversations I've heard about how possible it is that we can all uh, get on the same page after after September 11th. Uh, we can't. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think what you could have, if this really is about workers' rights, let's have uh, a, a roundtable involving an equal part of Democratic and Republic, Republican uh, talking heads and have them have a philosophical discussion on two numbers. The, the 100 number on the why, uh, why, are, uh, why is 100 the magic number for, uh, for employers who don't have to follow this? And the 32 number, which is the number of hours someone has to work before this applies to them, as far as healthcare is concerned. Um, if you want to really have an actual conversation out loud where you can show people that you're taking this conversation seriously from a real philosophical standpoint, argue that where the outcome is not legislation here or there. You're just showing people that you're serious about the subject because those two numbers mean a lot to this conversation. Yeah, they're relevant. Uh, we'll get to the employer uh, requirement for 100 plus employees in just a moment. Real quickly, this is less of a requirement and more of a I wish you would. Calling on large entertainment venues to require proof of vaccination or testing for entry. Uh, that, that to me seems pretty toothless because, you know, they're not doing anything uh, with it. But then we get to the kind of granddaddy of them all. Requiring all employers with 100-plus employees to ensure their workers are vaccinated or tested weekly. Uh, this is the one that is potentially the sticky wicket. I, I mean, it's in a way the one I was most excited about because I think it'll pay the most dividends. It's also the one that's going to pick the fight with the big corporations. Uh, it, it will... I mean, you're already starting to see pushback from certain groups, as we'll get to in just a moment. And I think... In terms of debate, where the Republicans would have the best argument or the best engagement point would be, why 100, why not 50? Uh, right. And then there's another question that uh, many of these employers are bringing up that's a valid one of, when you say 100 employees, are you talking about for the total organization or are you talking at a specific site? And if it's at a specific site, in my opinion, that's stupid. The number should be way lower. If it's at a specific site, it should probably start at around 15, maybe at 10. Um, I mean, really. Uh, so it's got to be 100 employees grand total. But then like a different way of thinking about this is why does it really matter how many employees at all? Doesn't it really matter how many people at a given site? Right. So, like, if you were really going to try to come up with this regulation, in my opinion, the way to do this regulation is any employment site that has more than 10 people is now requiring vaccination or daily testing. And so, like, let's say you're an employer and you don't want to do that for philosophical reasons or whatever, one option is figure out a way to do your office remotely or do your office with staggered days where people are in on staggered days. Um, there are different ways to get COVID compliant um, that don't necessarily need to be 
requiring vaccinations. Uh, and so imagine I am someone, in favor of yeah. giving more people ways to be COVID safe or COVID cool, as I like to say, just because, you know, the consonants or whatever. Like you can be more COVID cool without like necessarily requiring everyone's vaccinated. Although again, stated preferences, everyone would be, I just do look at the end of the day, we just got to get a lid on it one way or another. And not everyone's going to be persuaded by these arguments. Yeah. So if this is about density at a site, and I guess that's what this is, or this is about so many people. That to me is the real point of question. I just don't see how Republicans turn the conversation to no joe biden this is wrong it should be about density that is right. the that is the right response if i right. was if, yeah no that is how i would respond to right. it but then the policy prescription is more progressive and more you know do more it, essentially it's not it's not as it's not republican it's not republican <laughs> yeah. it's it's uh but there's no counter to it there, there's absolutely no, like what do you say against that once you once you reframe this as a density issue I, I, I mean i'll give you a perfect example if there is a bakery that has a chain of them let's say i was like up in massachusetts over the weekend so i'll just like you know thinking of this one bakery let's say la Florentina opens up they have seven people per shop and they open up 15 shops across the state yeah, now they have 100 employees. Does La Florentina really need to be testing every one of these bakeries and requiring vaccinations at every one of these bakeries when, in theory, you can essentially achieve herd immunity in any one of these bakeries with six people out of the seven being vaccinated? Like, You know what I mean? Like, like, right. I, it just it starts getting weird because like you don't actually need to require everyone i think you actually get away by the math with like five out of seven being that you know like it just it doesn't need to be that way uh i don't think in order to get to where we're trying to get to and i i I just you want to leave as many options as possible and show that show that you're trying to come in with a light touch i mean I, i i'm dealing with this in my own sort of experiences with my own business of like you don't want to tell customers, hey, no, we now have to wear masks or anything at the same time. But you also can't tell people, nobody has to do anything. It doesn't matter if the Delta variant's happening. you got to find some place in between. Um, to, to your point, though, in terms of headwinds, uh, Politico reporting today in their inimitable political way uh, that Biden's workplace vaccine mandate is facing headwinds. President Joe Biden's surprise order for the Labor Department to issue mandatory vaccine rules for large companies, leaning, leaning, is already facing headwinds from businesses, conservative governors, and even his union allies. Management side attorneys, or they could say corporate attorneys, but they don't, said they are fielding frenzied calls from companies with questions over what the rules requiring them to verify that their workers are vaccinated or at least tested weekly for COVID-19 will actually entail, and whether businesses and or unvaccinated employees will have to pay for the testing. Um, So essentially, like, who's going to have to pick up the bill on this testing? Well, I mean, you know, if you want to put it on the unvaccinated employee, I sort of, like, don't give a shit at this point. Uh, like sucks to be you. You could get the paid time off at six and carrots. Uh, 
if if it's gonna make the pill if it's gonna make the medicine go down more for the employer this is like the only time i'll ever say this i say don't make the employer pay for this this is totally the employee's fault they need to go and pay for the testing if they have to get tested every week unions they've been treading a fine line over the new policy and arguing that workers and laborers should have a say in the mandate policy and also strongly urging their members to get the shot. So, like, it's kind of like, I get where unions are caught between a rock and a hard place. I actually have to say, for their part, unions have been playing this about as well as you can. They know the right answer here. Um, they also know the right answer probably internally inside of the union and what the majority opinion is. At the same time, being union strong does mean having to encompass a wide range of opinions among employees, and lots of unions have Republican voting members in the union. It's weird. It happens. I swear to God, they're real people. Um, I, I've heard tell of them. I've met them. Uh, like So you actually need them in your union, and so you need a union that's sort of you know, permissive of this because oftentimes those guys are reliable votes in your union. Uh, so that is a challenge for Biden. Um, let me see. Uh, do do the new emergency rules were announced Thursday as part of a new six part effort from Biden to increase the vaccination rate in the U S as he seeks to tamp down criticism over the administration's handling of a surge in coronavirus cases related to the Delta variant. Only about 53% of the population is currently fully vaccinated. Um, this is the real problem, right? Like Biden was shooting for 73 or 70% vaccination rate by July 4th. He fell way short of that and they had to massage up the numbers. The problem with massaging up the numbers is that is fine if there's not actually another surge and the story is over at this point. The story is not over at this point and there is another surge. Um, so it is a real problem. So uh, you have people like Ian Schaefer, uh, a chairman or uh, a chair of the Loeb's Employment and Labor Practice in New York. It's millions of dollars a year to any size company. I've seen companies do it. Talking about uh, the rapid testing program uh, imagined under Biden's thing. Uh, it's cause they'd have to buy it. They'd have to train how to do the testing. They'd have you know, like, like it, it makes sense. It does. It sounds like it wouldn't be that expensive, but it probably would end up costing about a million dollars all told with all the training and implementation stuff. Um, and there are real concerns that it wouldn't actually guarantee the health and safety in a way that mandating vaccines would. So in this case, the attorney is basically saying, it's nice that you're offering the testing alternative, except that it's going to require employers a lot of money to implement the testing thing, which is, again, basically an indulgence for these employees who don't want to get vaccinated, which, again, makes it all the more like for all the rest of us employees, like, wow, that's millions of dollars that could be going to our annual raises. And instead, they're not going to our annual raises. I mean, not that they necessarily would. I get that, guys. I'm not that stupid. I've been around the block here. But instead of them going anywhere else, they're going into a money pit for the jerk who refuses to wear a mask while working with all y'all. Like, yeah, I'd, I'd rather it, the money go somewhere else. Anywhere else. I, all, I, I mean, I'll be honest, and it takes a lot for me to say this. I'd rather go to CEO like bonuses at the end of the year than <laughs> than the jerk who. I mean, I'm serious. And like that it takes a lot. 
to get me to side with CEO bonuses of all things. Like, uh, but seriously, why do I want this indulgence for this other employee? Uh, I mean, even in terms of my union, if they leave the company and they're out of the union, the union's still fine. You know, it's a, it, like the union's just probably actually more ideologically homogenous at this point. It's probably not hurting anything. Um, at some point, do you consider this mandate to be an issue that is going to be a sticking issue as far as in a particular swing state or in a particular congressional race? Is this, is this a breaking point for it? Like, because I feel like that's the underlying fear that, that people have about this, because this is going to, this has an undetermined outcome. <laughs> like it has begun. I'll give you one. Know it's I'll, I'll give somewhere. you one where Democrats yeah. might want to be wary about Georgia. Yeah. You got the Republican governor there. You've got a strong Republican electorate there. This was a red state for a long while. What turned it blue is the African-American electorate out there in Georgia. And saying this with some degree of delicateness here, uh, one point of weakness in the vaccination campaign has been among many in the African-American community. Um, there has been some reticence to get the vaccine for various reasons, some historically driven, others more analogous in many ways to what we see on the right of center when it comes to not getting the vaccine. And I could see potentially a scenario wherein Joe Biden's vaccine mandate creates some issues in Georgia. I am not coming up with any other battleground states off the top of my head where it poses any immediate challenge, but Georgia does stick out. Maybe Arizona. You know what? I actually think no, because I think a lot of the Arizona transplants are from California and even the red voters in Arizona, they are like California Republicans. So they're like cool with vaccines and just want their taxes low. So like this might, where what you might actually see in other states that's like a little more subtle is actual subtle support for this. I mean, I even see among members of my own Republican family, like they don't like Joe Biden all of a sudden, but they don't hate this. They like this. Yeah. Uh... One problem, though, to, to this plan, uh, we were talking about the rapid testing. Uh, the big issue here is that there's just not a lot of rapid testing supplies, period. So it's not just the implementation costs. Uh, in response to this new plan, Virginia businesses and health departments are searching for rapid tests to no avail due to a shortage. Health officials are hoping that Biden's going to invoke the Defense Production Act to ramp up the production of the rapid tests because of their scarcity. The doctor, uh, Noel Bissell, of the New River Health District says that the shortage is a big problem. Another problem is that businesses aren't sure how to organize testing for employees, and the health department can't help. We don't have the capacity to arrange to be the testing source for every business or agency for their unvaccinated folks. That's, again, Noel Bissell of the New River Health District. So, essentially... 
businesses are going to have to organize it because the health departments are not ready to step in all of a sudden be like the administrative hub for every business in the district. Makes sense. How do you just scale that up all of a sudden? So now it's got to go back to the businesses who are going to need to hire somebody new to do that. That person who is new is going to need to be trained. Like This is not easy. And what is much easier is for people to just go and get the shot. I mean, and if you are pro-business, if you are someone who is pro-business and you really think about this, another way of thinking about this is imagine if one of your employees was going to force upon you onerous costs of upwards of a million dollars and you didn't have the right to even fire them. You're a small business owner. Wouldn't you want that, right? Like, as someone who is sort of in this realm. Yeah, duh. Duh. So this is like a no-brainer for me. Uh, and and if you were not someone who fetishized small business owners, but instead actually was a small business owner, or was someone who like actually like knew what small business owners were going through, you'd realize that like, the, the cost of implementation on this would be crushing. Uh, so you go, okay, well... Joe Biden's only requiring it on employers with 100 employees. For now, for now, that might change. As we just said, there's a cogent argument why it very well might change to a site-based requirement and maybe ought to. And and if you're a small business owner who has a, a site with 10 employees, which we said was a completely plausible number, a million-dollar compliance program is insane overhead to suddenly incur. So wouldn't it be easier and shouldn't it be the way for that small business owner to preserve their business to be able to fire the employee who refuses to get vaccinated and hire someone else from the market who will come in vaccinated and do the work? Why shouldn't the employer have that right? Like There isn't actually a cogent libertarian argument for this. There isn't really a cogent conservative argument for this. Um, the If you believe... And sort of this expansive view of the employer's rights, uh, what the Biden administration arguing here is very straight ahead. And I think based around this, too, they're about to go up to the Supreme Court and like get a huge win, like a 6-3 win. Um, all, like if and when someone tries to challenge this, because Neil Gorsuch is a guy who says that if your employer says to stay in a truck and die on an icy road, you should. Like, why wouldn't Neil Gorsuch say if your employer says get the vaccine or lose your job, then you, you know, bye bye, see you bye. You don't have a job anymore. Yeah, that that adds up for me. And uh, I think that's where the where the mind of the media on the right and where the mind of the judiciary on the right are two very different places i want to thank brian for coming on the first ever edition of the don't worry dispatch that was the episode that we taped on monday here on wednesday i got back in the proverbial recording booth i think this one was taped in my kitchen if memory serves and i spieled a little bit about alexandria ocasio-cortez's 
tax the rich dress and the discourse around that. Essentially, got to talk about what people are talking about and why they're talking about it. It becomes a story in and of itself, a bit of a Streisand effect thing. And also, we talked a bit about the California recall election and why ultimately it's a good thing that Gavin Newsom hung on to the governorship despite whatever problems Gavin Newsom may have. And I'm not just talking about, as I'm taping this right now, his two kids coming up with COVID-19 diagnoses. Uh, Gavin Newsom is a problematic dude for sure. But he survived his recall election, and we talked about that here on the Wednesday installment of the Don't Worry Dispatch, which you can hear now. So let's begin by talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, everyone's favorite congressperson to talk about at bare minimum, and this incident involving the Met Gala and the Tax the Rich dress, her posturing around that, and this New York Times copy. There is a lot to say. The internet likes saying all of these things, and as this is a YouTube-based format, I'm leaning into it a little bit. I'll be shameless in my setup of this, but there's also some really substantial things to talk about involving this New York Times copy because I'm reading this New York Times copy not because it's the best copy, but because there are things that we need to talk about that are problems inside of this copy. So this is from the New York Times. AOC's Met Gala dress triggers many responses. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York arrived at the Met Gala on Monday evening dressed in a custom Brother Vielis ivory wool jacket dress with an organza flounce. Can you tell that I'm not into fashion very much? And the message of tax the rich in emblazoned in red across her back. In video footage shot before her arrival, she can be seen making her way to the vehicle that delivered her to the gala, a masked aide holding up the train of her dress while she smiled brightly and waved at her fans. Designers and corporate sponsors generally pay the hefty price of admission, $35,000 a ticket or $200,000 or $300,000 a table for the gala guests who typically include a quorum of Kardashians, Hollywood A-listers, and supermodels. The star-studded event is often referred to as the Oscars of fashion. Many New York City elected officials are invited as well as, quote, guests of the museum who do not pay to attend. So, we begin here with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, representative from New York City. Uh, this is now her third year where she was eligible to attend the gala, and this year she has decided to attend it. The first year, running against Joe Crowley, she won. She didn't attend the gala. The second year, it was canceled because of the pandemic. Boo-hoo. My heart weeped. I actually remember like something about that and maybe cracking some jokes about it at the time. This year, she decides to attend the gala. And there is criticism around her attending the gala. And I guess we can start there before we get into the kind of the specific redders on the left making these criticisms and the New York Times framing of this, which I think are different points of discussion here as well. So beginning on the actual decision to go to the gala, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's affirmative defense for this is, I am forcing the conversation about taxing the rich. And I got to say, on this defense, uh, anyone who says she's overtly wrong is lying, but anyone who says that she's dead on right is also wrong as well. She's about, let's say, two-thirds right. So what is she right about and what is she wrong about? She's right 
that her wearing the dress has forced a conversation about taxing the rich and whether the rich are taxed enough. That conversation, however, has been out there for a long time. And I think the valid criticism is not, okay, yeah, you definitely got people to say tax the rich. I mean, how many times have I said it during this podcast? In fact, I'm doing an entire episode around it. This is a very strong affirmative argument for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez doing this, except for the issue that we're not going to during this episode and probably during the broader discourse online, really talk all that much about what tax taxing the rich should look like. To wit, I just saw this week a a story about the Democrats and the new budget bill and a discussion about capital gains um, and taxing gains and dividends at the exact same rate. And I mean, there's no sort of exploration about like, how should we be taxing dividends versus gains? Should we be taxing activities like shorting And I mean, should we be looking into crypto markets as being bad for the global economy, but also the global environment? Um, Tax the rich doesn't get us to anywhere on that. Uh, I mean, you know, look, even if you take all of Bezos's money and you took it tomorrow, you are funding the federal government here in the United States for upwards of six weeks, maybe eight weeks. Uh, that's looking at the annual budget. I, you know, the annual budget's close to $2 trillion. Bezos only has, I think, you know, in pre-divorce, I think Bezos only had $150 billion. I say only. Um, obviously, that's an inordinate amount of money for any one person to have, and that is certainly the size of um, many small economies and many small nation states and Bezos could go and do a world of good there. But, you know, in terms of just taxing the rich here in America, you you, you know, I mean, it's got to be more than that. It's got to be tax- taxing activities like stock investment. It's It's got to be about taxing properties more, taxing inheritance more. And tax the rich just sort of gets us into like a superficial conversation. Is it better than not doing that? Yeah, and insofar as it makes people uncomfortable there, which I have questions about how much it even does that, I guess it's good. Um, But again, where she's at least a third wrong, maybe I'm talking myself into 40 to 45% wrong, honestly, at this point, is that it doesn't actually really move the conversation any further. Does this change Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema? No. It doesn't. Um, they're still on their little, you know, uh, I'm a responsible adult power trip. Uh, pretty in pink over there and uh, Grandpa Joe. Um, and, and I think, you know, insofar as it comes in the same week as AOC is feuding with Joe Manchin, I don't think the optics are playing into her favor. Um, that being said, we're now talking about AOC and we're analyzing her and thinking about her actions. And, and I want to say that I'm trying to be pretty balanced here. You're coming down 55, 45, certainly suggests at least some degree of waiting. You might say I'm being overly fair, but at least I'm weighing the good and the bad, right? Uh, the one thing that sticks out to me about the AOC discourse, and this will get us into the second part of the New York times article here is that, we are looking at her and picking her apart and analyzing her, and, and, and rightfully so. I'm not saying this stuff is not constructive. It probably is constructive. It's probably a good thing. But it's certainly happening in a way that it never happened with Bernie Sanders uh, this last time around. And, and I, I'm not talking about his 2016 run. I'm talking about, you know, what was he really doing between 2016 and 2020? Um And shouldn't that have gotten more criticism? And shouldn't there be more criticism of his campaign 
and I, I got to argue yes. And, and my, my argument for yes essentially is being made by the New York Times for me here because in order to look for left criticism of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who does the New York Times go to? They go to Brianna Joy Gray, who was the former national press secretary for Bernie Sanders' 2020 campaign. Um, arguably one of the worst hires that Bernie Sanders did, and certainly considering how pro- high profile she was, uh, really needs to be looked at with some greater skepticism like this is as bad as when sanders hired manafort's running buddy for the 2016 primaries uh, tad devine uh, like th- these these are not strong hires and if brianna joy gray um and even just the hiring of, of joy gray have been scrutinized broader um with, with greater intensity by progressive and left outlets you wouldn't then be turning to brianna joy gray uh, where's her broadcasting partner virtual texas these days what happened to him where's he at uh, she doesn't talk about him very much anymore. Um, you wouldn't be holding her up as the arbiter of what is and is not good progressive politics and what is the right way and the wrong way of doing this. Um, she should be a marginalized voice within the left. And because she has not been... Uh, like I don't like calling for the tearing down of the you know the de-elevation of people, but when someone earns de-elevation, they ought to be de-elevated because it does harm to the broader political movement. Going to the New York Times copy here, more surprising than the rote judgments from her political opponents was the criticism of Ocasio-Cortez generated from the left. A chorus of dissatisfaction from progressives and self-described socialists disappointed by a gesture they said caricaturized a progressive cause and underscored their sense that she is not maximizing her ability to fight for working people from Congress. I mean, again think there's an open debate to begin this conversation of won't well, gee how much how much clout do we really think Ocasio-Cortez and the squad have inside of the house it's some one could argue they could do more I'm even semi-receptive to that like 33% receptive to that but also then we need to do some counting and go yeah there's there's some real limitations here um, Brianna Gray, the former national press secretary for the 2020 campaign of Sanders and the co-host of the aptly named, that's my own editorial comment, Bad Faith podcast said that Ocasio-Cortez is, quote, held to a unique standard exactly because people expect more of her, which is extraordinarily rich coming from Brianna Joy Gray. Again, where's Virgil Texas, Bree? What happened to him? Joy Gray said that some of the progressive backlash to the dress grew out of a more general disappointment with some of her policy stances. Quote, people are disappointed in her behavior outside of this context, and this seems to be reflective of a lack of commitment that is demonstrated in a purely political context. So even Joy Gray's best defense of this level of outrage is, yeah, it's not really justified, but we're upset at her for other reasons. Okay, valid it may be, but you're at least saying that you're using this as a transference point, and this is starting as the defense position. This is not a great place to be to defend this. Danny Haifong, a socialist activist and writer, said what offended him was not the dissonance of the self-described democratic socialist hobnobbing with the elite, but, quote, AOC and the squad are not leveraging their enormous base of support to demand the very thing she puts on her dress. 
I think that Danny has a more solid point here on the ladder. Um, but again, I you know get back to what's going on with our senators, Warren Sanders. Um, you know, Sanders just last week was praising Chuck and Nancy for doing the best they darn well could on this. Um, and I don't hear the criticism towards Sanders on this. And Sanders is an ally. He's fighting the good fight. He wants what I want. But if we're going to criticize people, frankly, I think there, there's sort of two arguments here. One, the senators are more relevant than the representatives. They just are. Even if you want to say the squad's bigger, the Senate, the senators are worth at minimum four representatives apiece. You know, there's 435 seats in the House and there's 100 senators. So yeah, they're like worth like 4.3 senators or 4.3 representatives apiece. That's like the whole squad right there in Bernie Sanders. Second of all, Sanders is in the House and he is uniquely positioned to go up against the main opponents of this. Sanders and Warren are the tag team that should be facing up against the upstarts that are Mansion and Cinema. And Sanders and Warren are sitting on the sidelines. If you want to go after Sanders and Warren for not doing more to go after Mansion and Cinema, I'm with you on this. I even like the fact that AOC is fighting with Mansion. Could she have done this sooner? Sure, I'm down with that. I'm not necessarily even hearing that argument, though. I'm hearing that like there needs to be some sort of House mutiny, and it's really missing the point. You can have whatever mutiny you want in the House, and whatever effects that that mutiny has will be mitigated in a substantial way by these delinquent senators. So unless and until... Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema are brought to heel, and my God, I hope they are, and I would love, love, love for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a representative, to do that on her own against these two petulant senators. I, I just submit that, like, she's not actually all that well-positioned to do that, it, you know, when she is a senator. If she is a senator, and Cinema's a senator, and senator, Cinema is in there going minimum wage no way um yeah at that point i expect alexandria ocasio-cortez a colleague to stand up and go my colleague christian cinema is absolutely morally bankrupt um i know she's not financially bankrupt because all of these moderates tend to be the people coziest with the corporate donors so she's probably doing quite well on regular bankruptcy but in terms of ethics and in terms of morals she's absolutely bankrupt and i'm ashamed that she's part of our caucus but it's just a different conversation when you're in the house um there is a certain amount of power that aoc has it is limited uh, I think that she needs reinforcements in this upcoming midterms. Like, if you want to see her do more, if you are one of these critics, I guess I ask, what are you doing to pad out her numbers further? Because the Progressive Caucus is just simply not that large. I, you know, I, I like AOC. I think that at this point, she is the progressive movement, of which I consider myself to be a part of, whether they want me or not. I think she is the best chance we have of having a progressive nominee for president who might actually be able to beat the Republican challenger that they're going up against. She is really media savvy. She gets analytics and gets how to communicate with Gen Z. She is photogenic, intelligenic. The fact that she can go to these Met Galas and that fashion designers want to work with her is probably a good thing on balance and not a bad thing because she's never going to win over 
the type of people who don't want to wear a mask when they go to Walmart. Um, that is not necessarily who AOC is going to win over. Or if she is going to win over those people, she'll win them over in a completely different way, in a completely different media outfit, in a completely different media appearance. Um, I, you know, the greatest redders can work all sorts of different rooms. Bobby Kennedy was able to obviously speak to all the country club elites and everything like that, but also had like a real touch with the average person. And I'm not necessarily saying Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is Bobby Kennedy, but what I'm saying is that effective rhetorical communication works like that. You're not doing the same thing in all these places. So it's not like you go to the country club to connect with the masses. You go to the country club to connect with the country club. You go down to the local bar to connect to people in the local bar. And unless you're Beto O'Rourke and you stand on the tables, you might have a decent chance as long as you kind of conduct yourself like a normal person. Now, let's move on to the California recall election. I don't have as much to say about this. Um, the right person, I guess... One, Gavin Newsom stinks. He shouldn't be governor. And what the Democratic Party did here to the voters of California really stinks. They should have pulled the chair out on this guy. And they should have pulled the chair out on this guy because he was doing such a bad job that he even opened up the door for this election to be possible. I get that there is some sort of argument that it is easier to keep an incumbent in office than to run in a completely new candidate. That's all well and good, but especially as you look at these numbers where Newsom wins 63 to 36 on the recall decision, they had room to grow or room to shed, as you, however you want to look at it, um, in terms of actually doing better. Because um, Larry Elder was the odds-on favorite here. Um, even Larry Elder only was able to get 46% of the potential if Newsom is recalled, who should replace him as governor. Larry Elder not even able to fully connect with uh, the electorate who wanted to recall Gavin Newsom. So what that tells me is that there was a real opportunity for the Democrats in the state of in, in the state of California to run someone else and be able to very successfully um, defend the seat. Now, it, I say it is good. On second order, and excuse me, I was getting some messages here from my phone. I say this is good on a second order thing because Elder um, would have made an absolutely horrible governor. Uh, like, okay, so like he has no real governmental experience and was sort of just proud of that. So before you even get into any of his stated views, like the guy is just like, I don't know nothing about no government and I don't need to. It reminds me of Herman Cain when he was mocking this is before mocking the coronavirus and then what happened to herman what happened? where's herman what's he up to these days can he can he do the show i'm hearing he can't uh but not from him uh but herman you know made fun of why do i need to know anything about foreign policy famously saying i'm not going to need to know who the prime minister of Uzbekistan stand 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 is um this sort of boastful ignorance thing is really really dangerous to actually put into power I'm assuming everyone watching this show understands that because we just all lived through Donald Trump's presidency. However, it still bears acknowledgement that like that right out the door would have made a Larry Elder governorship disastrous. California is the sixth largest economy in the world. There are a lot of standards um, for safety and any other things that get set in California that Elder would have 
actively tried to change. And then we get into the issue of Dianne Feinstein, uh, the walking, talking advertisement for the gerontocracy and the absolute need to impose a constitutional requirement that you cannot run for re-election after the age of 80. God, we need it so, so badly. Yeah, I'm including Joe Biden in this. Dianne Feinstein, though, is the gold standard for this argument. Oh, her and Grassley as well. Um, But but there there are some other ones, too, who who really uh, big question marks. So Feinstein, uh, she very likely might not serve out the rest of this term. Uh, there have been issues with her and a lot of reporting about her faculties being diminished and everything like that. And Elder was saying that he would upset the apple cart in the Senate and make it 51-49. And part of me would be very amused to see the air get let out of the Joe Manchin Kirsten Cinema balloon. Because um, here's the thing. Uh, when they have to fall in line and vote with the team, they're really not, uh, they're nothing special. And if they start voting with ours too much, they start to kind of smoke themselves out. You start to see what's really going on here. Uh, so their, their existence requires this 50-50 split. They're so, so dependent on having their party just strong enough to stab in the eye repeatedly. And Larry Elder threatened that. So it would have been slightly amusing to watch that fall apart for Mansion and Cinema, But... Elder would have been an absolutely horrible governor. Now you get into his views. Uh, I think one thing that will stick to me or stick with me as a result of this race is the fact that Larry Elder has said some really abysmal things that if Larry Elder was a different guy would have been the end of his candidacy or would have just been absolutely mega scandals. Um, In particular, the one that really sticks out to me is his comment about slavery and slave owners. Larry Elder holds a position that, i got to be honest, I have a hard time imagining any white Republican politician being able to get out of their mouth without, like, really choking on the words. Okay, Steve King. Steve King would be a little bit different. But Larry Elder holds the position that the slave owners ought to have been paid reparations for slavery because they lost their property when the slaves were freed. Which, like, makes the mind spin on any number of levels, uh, and I could run them all down, but then we'll get a little long in the tooth here. The one that I keep going back to is, if you are vehemently pro-life, which I can only assume these anti-abortion crusaders uh, uh, absolutely are. That's the shield that they hold in front of themselves as they charge with bayonets. Uh, If you're really pro-life, then slavery is an absolute abridgment of one's right to life. And as such, okay, yes, there was a law that said that life is property, but you clearly do not believe that is the case and you would believe that such a law is vastly unjust and so yes there are beneficiaries within that system but but this is a like kind of fundamental moral affront and absolutely 100 percent, there is no coherent reason why you would support slave owners getting reparations if you truly believed that one is entitled to the right to life um, and that life ought not to be abridged, um, that, that when that is written in the Constitution, that is right. Um, 
let alone Larry Elder's own personal background or whatever. Um, so, like, I, I wanted to bring that up because, you know, the at the end of all of this, they really did dodge a bullet. And, and I'll be thinking about this one for a long time because as bad as Ron DeSantis is, I think if he said something like that and if that came out, it would be over. It wouldn't be over for Trump, uh, obviously not. But, like, if it came out for Pompeo, that would be the end for Pompeo because he's not strong enough to go all in on it. Uh, and and it, it just it worries me that there are these little blind spots in the media. I guess that is the through line um, in terms of media coverage, mainstream media coverage here today. You have these little blind spots in the mainstream media where things can get through to the absolute peril of all the rest of us, um, whether it's a person like Bree Joy Gray getting serious burn in the middle of a New York Times article looking for left critics. So this is the New York Times elevating this person as like a super hyper valid left critic, I, I'd sooner sooner see her elevate Vosh over Brianna Joy Gray, and I know Vosh is a guy who is problematic in his own rights. Um, but that's what I'm saying. Like when the New York Times makes this sort of decision, it does something. Um, when media chooses not to focus too much on this little Candace Owens, Larry Elder line, and really make him sort of explain this one out, um, because they're scared, because they know that the discourse could get a little messy. Um, it, it happens at our own peril, and more importantly, it shows bad faith actors, pun intended, um, that there is the ability to do this thing again. Um, that there's this little loophole and you can squiggle your way back through it. So the <clears throat> the don't worry dispatch model is, of course, in response to feedback that I had been getting in a number of different directions and trying to come up with something, anything to keep you damn people happy. Uh, but the other thing that I wanted to do inside of this format or that I was excited that this format would allow me to do is take a more timely look at Friday news dump stories. Now, they may not be particularly weighty, but I think stories that get backloaded to the end of the week are inherently interesting because they could have made these stories happen at any other part of the week. Obviously, if you want to get someone talking about something all week, you do it on Monday. But in the media, and the media knows that this is what newsmakers do, and yet they take the bait. If you put a story out on Friday afternoon, maybe it'll get picked up on the Sunday shows, but odds are by Tuesday or Wednesday of next week, it will be gone, and there's a really good chance that Monday comes like a deluge and washes away whatever bad story happened to come out on Friday afternoon. So I wanted to make sure that we took a look at some of those because this administration has used Friday afternoon as a news dump time, unlike Trump, who is more fond about making news. Biden's team likes to be a little bit more normal and traditional in this sense, and they bury stories on Friday afternoon. So you got to cover them a little bit differently. So all of this is to say this next chunk of the dispatch, this would be, I guess, episode three of the dispatch. This one took a look at some of those Friday news dump stories. In addition to Beto O'Rourke announcing his candidacy, running against Greg Abbott, I have thoughts. I really want this Greg Abbott guy gone. I, I This is very quickly moving 
up to the top of my list. He's very bad. He needs to not be the governor anymore. And it's not really about, you know, standing the Democrats or anything like that. Uh, you know, I'm not thrilled about O'Rourke. And there's another guy we're going to talk about here, McConaughey, who doesn't, you know, light my world on fire. But Greg Abbott is lighting my world on fire, but in, in like the, the really bad way, the, the way you really don't want. Greg Abbott sucks. He needs to go. Anyways, enjoy this next installment of The Dispatch, and I'll be back at the end of the show. First, we're going to talk about Beto O'Rourke's reemergence on the political scene. What is he doing now? Which governor of Texas will he be running against? And will he be running for governor of Texas? A lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of intrigue going on in that story. We'll be talking about that in just a moment. A little later on, we'll be talking about some of the stories that came down during the Friday news dump, including the FDA declining to endorse Pfizer's COVID-19 booster shot and what prompted that decision, what the fallout from that decision might be, and whether or not that was a particularly wise decision at this juncture. We'll discuss the pros and cons of this. I do understand the positions of both sides and this is not one of these stories where one side is just spouting balderdash so we'll try to add some nuance into that and uh, give you kind of a multi-dimensional look at that speaking of nuance and multi-dimensional looks i don't know that i can promise that for the story after that which is going to be god help me tucker carlson and Nicki minaj specifically Nicki minaj's cousins, brothers, friends, testicles, and whether or not they've been affected by the vaccine. Probably shouldn't go and get that booster shot. Probably something else going on with that story. And I swear that I actually have a somewhat marginally interesting slant on this story. You can only get so deep with a story of that nature. Uh, Then we will talk about some stories that came down in the Friday news dump beyond the Pfizer vaccine. We'll talk about the drone strike in Kabul on August 29th. We will talk about Millie also in hot water uh, for this story that was published in Bob Woodward's book uh, involving his engagement with a counterpart in China. A lot of things to talk about in that story. And then last, I guess... I have to have the back of the Biden administration on something uh, because I think that the people uh, attacking them, a surprise attacker, uh, not not an attacker that you normally think of, uh, coming after Biden here in the final story in the Friday news dump uh, is interesting. It's interesting. So we'll get into that. Speaking of Joe Biden, though, just to start off the show here, his job approval rating, not great this week. And I think... For a few weeks, the media and even the Republicans were trying to sell you on the idea that his job approval rating was poor because of Afghanistan. Uh, I think now Afghanistan has really dissipated, and it's pretty clear what people are frustrated with Biden over. You have the Republicans who are upset that Biden is just now beginning to start doing more with regards to the Delta variant. However, inside of Biden's own electorate coalition, myself would be included in that picture, are a chorus of people who have for a long time been saying that Joe Biden needed to be taking the Delta variant more seriously and that he was wrongheaded to be rushing to reopen schools 
and that July 4th was an arbitrary deadline and that the coronavirus was still really prevalent around the world. And so it was weird to assume that even with the domestic numbers being fairly low at that point, that the United States, with its very low vaccination rate, and Biden knew that at the time, were low compared to our peers uh, out of our G7 peers, uh, the United States ranks sixth with 53% of all adults vaccinated compared to you know, places like England, etc., being much closer to 70%. Um, the United States was really not in a position in July to really say that they were going to do it. Uh, gain those numbers up real quickly. About 62% of Americans have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, however, in terms of fully vaccinated, it's about 53%. Canada leads the G7 countries in vaccination rate with almost 75% of its population at least partially vaccinated, followed by France, Italy, the United Kingdom, um, all of them above 70%, Germany at 66%, Japan at 63%, uh, the United States, yeah, really dogging in that pack. So thinking that we were on our way to, you know, V for Victory Day on July 4th was you know, just basically looking at a date on the calendar rather than looking at data on a table. So there is a group of people inside of Biden's own base who are not pleased with Biden's performance. And I think that that all kind of comes together to make a picture that it's, you know, 42% of Americans approving of the job that Biden is doing as president, 50% disapproving. Um, some of that is obviously Republican disapproval, but I think that there's a fair amount of liberal and progressive and left disapproval that is priced in there as well. I also just think that the new norm is going to be under 50% approval. So I think when we are looking at any of these presidents, uh, especially in this era of negative partisanship, we might want to look at 45% as successful. Um, so when Biden's at 44, he's maybe not doing all that bad, as, as weird as that is to say. Um, however, right now, 44%, this is from a Reuters poll, uh, approve of Biden's job performance, 50% disapprove. Rest, we're not sure. So that's 6% who aren't sure. So that might actually be his liberal base. Um, I, however you want to slice it, these numbers are not great. But at the same time, it if you believe as I do that the weakness here is because people want COVID-19 to be over, uh, really the ball is in Joe Biden's court to do more to end this. I don't think people really think the Republican way out is through, like you, you, that you can actually just do what the Republicans say and this thing will magically be over. That dog isn't hunting. Uh, people just want to see a plan, in my opinion, from Joe Biden uh, it, a strong one at that, that actually guarantees that they can get back to business as, you, as usual. Um, a, a tall order for Joe Biden. Uh, but like, I mean, speaking of that, it, you know, why do I say that they don't have a lot of faith in the Republican vision of this? I think you've really seen that play out with Greg Abbott here in Texas. He is a very strong test balloon that this really Trumpy sort of iteration of the Republican Party, or you could almost call them like the neocons on overdrive, if you want, if you don't, if you want to say that, that this is really less Trumpy than you'd think. I think, you know, like, that's a fair counterpoint to Texas, for sure. I, I think, you know, Florida is more Trumpy than people realize because of DeSantis, but, you know, Abbott is very much cut from the Texas Republican mold, not like Ted Cruz, Texas Republicans, like uh, the more kind of nondescript Rick Perry, George Bush, 
central casting Texas Democrat types. Abbott's trying to play into that and try to do this, you know, tough guy thing, but the Republican way of responding to the problems of the world is not really jibing for even Texans. Texans want a robust governmental response to the power grid situation that we experience here in December. Texans are not pleased that Abbott doesn't really seem to care about that. There are a lot of Texans. Uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily know or be able to say with confidence on the air right now that it's a majority. There are a lot of Texans who are extremely displeased about Ken Paxton and Greg Abbott's crusade to prohibit abortion in the state of Texas and ipso facto across the country. Uh, I think that there are a lot of people who are pretty angry about that, and rightfully so, but that's like a really energizing little moment. So like the power grid situation is a broad-based dissatisfaction. The abortion issue is a much more energizing, motivating sort of issue. And then obviously you have Abbott's response to COVID-19, which I think for a lot of people has left quite a lot to be desired. There are the people who support that sort of response to COVID-19, but even that is not the majority of the Republican Party, uh, particularly among the business class. Many of the business class, yes, they like the Republican part with the low taxes, but they also like the part where their business is open. And this is also why like entities like the corporate Democrats sort of exist, right? Like you have these pro-business Democrats and it, it, this is why there is actually a coalition of these people or what, what this coalition looks like. They want their business open. They know that mass mandates and vaccinations and all these sorts of things are good for their business because it means more commerce. It means that people who are trepidatious about going out and doing recreational stuff. Hi, how you doing? Uh, people were staying in on the weekends and maybe doing things like taping a podcast. Maybe we'd go out on vacation or you know go out and do something if we thought it was safer. Um, right now, I'm, I'm personally stuck in a loop where I've got to keep playing it safe seven days a week because I need to be working because I don't have paid time off or anything. And there's not really that government backstop right now. Going back to the Democrats here, if they're worried about midterms, helping out, uh, doing something on a stimulus check, a fourth round of coronavirus stimulus, showing that you guys care and putting the Republicans on the uh, defensive end saying, oh, no, we don't need that. The Delta variant's not a problem and stuff. The more the, the Republicans are saying things like that, the more I think they're losing. I also think uh, in watching one of these press conference things, I, I don't watch them daily. I, I can't. Jen Psaki is not my jam. But Saki did have a moment this week that I thought was very effective. Uh, where was it, Saki? I, I think it was, where she effectively named Donald Trump as the leader of the Republican Party and put the Republicans in this no-win situation where either they have to acknowledge the aging Donald Trump as still their de facto leader, which scuttles pretty much every presidential hopefuls dreams of running for president like if you're on DeSantis and you say Donald Trump is the leader of the Republican Party you might as well stop collecting money for your presidential run at that point well I'll put it another way you might as well keep taking the money in but if you were a donor you should stop giving money to Ron DeSantis at that point once he says that it's over um, however conversely once Ron DeSantis says that Donald Trump is not his leader in the Republican Party 
based on the internal polling that we've seen with Republicans, with over half of them saying that saying that Donald Trump won the election is a bedrock principle of being a Republican now, and Donald Trump is the leader of the Republican Party is a bedrock principle of being the in, in the Republican Party at this point. I think I think what I saw was like 59% or something of Republican respondents in this one poll said that it, th- those were I, totemistic things. It's not really relevant if it's 54 or 59, to be completely honest, or 62. Uh, anything over half tells you that it's the absolute wrong position for anyone who wants to be the nominee of the Republican Party to strive for, um, you know. See Nina Turner and co- calling Joe Biden half a bowl of shit. Like, like these are just moves that you can't make and survive a presidential primary in. I, I like that move by Saki. They should keep labeling the the Republicans as the party of Trump and make them make a decision on this. Um, and it, maybe that even works on a state level, especially with Greg Abbott being such an apparatchik. Now, O'Rourke, for his part. Is is not the the strongest option. Uh, I, the, like there is a stronger option than Beto O'Rourke, and and I don't. This is not. This is not surprising to me. Sorry for that brief outburst of Kawhi Leonard. He was that. That's my face when I think about Beto O'Rourke. I have the Kawhi Leonard. I'm not impressed face there. So. Beto O'Rourke, was a really nice story in 2018. And running against Ted Cruz as an empty vessel, aspirational hope guy who seemed kind of cool, that was good. The folksy, I'm doing 99 counties strategy and I'm making friends with people and we're getting my bumper stickers up all over the place and we're just doing it county by county and grinding it out. That was cool. That's probably how a Democrat wins Texas. Uh, unless you want to just like wait for the wave election and you know like give the Republicans a couple of extra elections because you don't want to actually try. Uh, but after O'Rourke lost to Ted Cruz, that was close, disappointing. Okay, wasn't amazing in the debate against Cruz. I you know still not sure how I felt about him working in working for the clampdown on Ted Cruz. I think it's cool. I think I like it. I, I as I as I ruminate on it now, I think I'm ultimately pro him saying working for the clampdown on Ted Cruz in that debate. But that's really neither here nor there. He decided to run for president as I was going to say we all remember, but do we? Do we all remember that? But he did. He did. He shouldn't have, and he did. He could have ran against John Cornyn. Everyone wanted him to run against John Cornyn. I don't know that that was actually that good of a move. Uh, I actually think Cornyn was a tougher out. I, you know, hard to say what the right answer was for O'Rourke. Uh, but the wrong answer was running for president, and, and he did that. He ran for president, and it didn't go very well. And so now O'Rourke's trying to get back on the scene, but like, He's not cool. If you talked to me three years ago, I would have said O'Rourke's kind of cool. Not like really cool. Kind of cool. Like not uncool. Like not, he's not Squaresville. He's okay. Now he reeks of try hard. Like like so much that you know there was like the thoughtful I'm uh, Jack Kerouac on the road Beto O'Rourke and you know I'm writing my little memoirs and it just he wasn't good when he ran for president 
there's so much of it feels so contrived. Even this whole will I or won't I thing feels contrived. Everything, like, he's not really thinking this hard on it. I would rather him just say what he actually feels. And I know he's capable of doing that, which is why I'm like, I don't hate him either. But, like, uh, he, he also doesn't do it on a regular basis. And certainly, you'd got to think when he's governor, he would be doing it less, not more, than he currently is now. Um, and at the end of the day, with O'Rourke, I don't think that this guy's got a brand of politics that I think is particularly worth fighting for trying to salvage so all things being equal when i look at the dallas morning news university of texas tyler poll i see greg abbott at 42 percent to o'rourke's 37 percent here and i see matthew mcconaughey at 44 percent to abbott's 35 percent so abbott loses seven points and he is down nine points to mcconaughey and I mean, yeah, okay, O'Rourke's only five point out, but like, why wouldn't you run McConaughey, who's nine points ahead? I really do think that Matthew McConaughey is more or less the political equivalent of Beto O'Rourke. I, I like, I'll grant that O'Rourke's probably slightly to McConaughey's left. If you'll grant that it's only slightly, it can't be very much. I, you know. I'm sure there are an issue or two where McConaughey's magical centrism kicks in and O'Rourke is to the left of him on this or that, but uh, it, it, it ain't much. Um, Alan West, uh, his primary challenge does not look very good in case you were worried about that. Uh, it, it, Abbott looks like he'll be cruising through that 65 to 20. That said, 65 to 20 in a heavily Republican state where they need to close ranks, not great. Um, Paxson and Bush, uh, I mean, even this is another one where you see a division 43%, uh, with Paxton to Bush's 28%. Um, I, n not like, uh, you know, uh, the changes coming tomorrow sort of thing. And this is also why I would favor McConaughey, but you, you do see even some Republicans and these would be your suburban Republicans and stuff. Just think that some of this uh, Republican abortion stuff, COVID-19 stuff, these, these are the things. This is not about Afghanistan here. They think this stuff is maybe going a little bit far. And they want to see, and by going a little bit far, what I'm saying with COVID-19, not doing anything and, you know, reopening like uh, Greg Abbott did and everything. Like, you know, uh, this is an absolute mistake, but... Here we are. So we will see. We will see uh, if, well, we'll see when O'Rourke runs. But we'll see if maybe wisdom can prevail here and McConaughey somehow gets the nod. Because, like, look, neither one of them are my particular jam. But if if I've got to go with one, I want someone who can beat Greg Abbott. I, I, I got to be honest. I'm in Texas. You know, it's this is not... Can we get Bernie Sanders to the governor's office? We can't. Like, that's not how Texas politics works. But, like, God, if we could get Greg Abbott out of the governor's office, that'd be fantastic. That's all I'm saying. All right. Let's talk now about the FDA and this decision involving COVID-19 vaccine booster shots. A group of leading U.S. and international scientists suggested that vaccine booster shots, quote, are not appropriate at this stage of the pandemic. The international group of scientists 
which includes some of the FDA and the WHO, concluded that boosting the vaccinated population doesn't outweigh the benefit of using those doses to immunize the billions of unvaccinated people worldwide. So when you are hearing this story, how often are you hearing it framed in the context of this is a decision about where to allocate those doses. This is not a decision about whether or not vaccinating booster shots is actually effective. Yeah, huge problem. Media is not presenting it this way. And so it is allowing the anti-vax people to go, see, you don't even need a booster shot. Actually, that's not what they're saying here. They're saying that given the option of giving people who have two shots already a third shot, or giving, let's say, that guy who's like, you don't even need a booster shot, a, a first dose, it would be much more strategically useful of greater utility to give Mr. Skeptic over here the boost or to give him the shot and give him the dose so that he's half vaccinated. You'd rather be fully vaccinated and have him half vaccinated than you have three shots. That's what the story is here. Uh, you're not getting that so often in the media presentation of this. So I wanted to start with that as the leadoff. Quote, none of the studies have provided credible evidence of a substantially declining protection against severe disease. Yeah, but you, you can't study the variants that we don't have yet. I, you know, and I know that that sounds a little bit glib, but like we know that this thing's going to keep mutating. So we go, well, it is going to mutate. We are worried that sometimes it will mutate against one of these vaccines. But then they're going to need to do a study. That study is going to take weeks. They're, they're always going to be, at minimum, a month and a half to two months behind wherever the evidence is. So rather than going, well, we don't have a study yet that says that this is good, we actually need to be thinking a step ahead here. Uh, we, reacting, reacting is what catches you flat-footed. Um, the group did say that booster shots may eventually be needed for the general population if vaccine-induced immunity wanes or a new variant emerges that can invade the body's immune response. That can happen, and so you want to already just be ahead of that. This has been our problem the whole way through. Several recent studies published by the CDC suggest that vaccines hold steady against severe illness, including the Delta variant. The Biden administration, meanwhile, has proposed administering vaccine boosters eight months after the initial shot, starting September 20. A committee of FDA advisors is scheduled to meet Friday to review the data. On Friday, late... They um, rejected a plan to offer Pfizer vaccine booster shots to everyone 16 and older. Members of the FDA's Vaccine and Related Biological Product Advisory Committee voted 16 to 2 against approving the booster shot after scrutinizing new data from Israel and questioning whether the data justified boosters for the general population when the current vaccines still offer robust protections against severe COVID-19 disease and hospitalization. Here you see the media spin on this and this is like an aggregated piece that's like taken from the new york times cnbc i, I forget which piece of copy I, I grabbed this from but again it's not a question of utility and i i think on that front there's really no debate um if it's me having two shots and johnny who has no shots having one shot i want johnny to have one shot at minimum uh, ideally i want johnny to get both shots 
Um, or if we really think Johnny Skeptic's not going to get the shot, can we just give him the J&J vaccine? Like, really? Uh, I, I mean, I, I hate doing it, but it's like we're going to deal with the petulant people. Give them the J&J one. I, and I know it's not the... It, it's not a bad one, but my understanding is that the Moderna one's better. But, like, I'd rather give Johnny a full dose of the J&J vaccine than me get a third booster dose of it. I mean, I still want to get a booster dose at some point. Don't get me wrong. But, no, I get that argument. No one's having that argument. But when the media presents it as, oh, well, you know, there's just no real use for that. But maybe for older Americans and other high-risk groups. I don't know. Why does Greg Abbott have three shots then? You know, like, I, I think that he seems to think that there is, going back to the dereliction of our governmental officials, there seems to be some utility in this. The votes are non-binding, and the FDA is expected to make a final decision on boosters by early next week. Hopefully, uh, by the time this gets out or edited together as like an episode of Don't Worry, uh, cooler heads or smarter heads will have prevailed. Uh, meanwhile, the CDC has scheduled a two-day meeting next week to discuss plans to distribute booster shots in the United States. So, hopefully, hopefully, the booster shot thing will work out. Because, I mean, a thing that concerns me is that if the FDA does not approve this, that maybe the booster shots will not be covered and they won't be free and therefore they will be less widely taken. And and we're not close right now. Uh, the whole problem with this booster shot controversy is we are still like the worst among all of our global economic peers in the G7, as I sort of opened up this show talking about here. We need to be getting everyone to be getting the shot more. Uh, there, from the administration, I talked about this in the previous episode, it's been a real kind of like sticks-oriented approach here. There is some, like New York City, I think, is offering, you know, the carrots of we'll give you money and that sort of thing. I don't know why the federal government isn't doing it. I don't know why Biden's not trying to be the good guy here. I, I don't know why Biden announced all these new mandates and didn't also couple that with, oh, by the way, I'm also working on a new COVID stimulus relief bill. Uh, because that would have made him very popular. People like the stimulus checks. And oh, by the way, economically speaking, not on the slate, but I did read it in preparation for the show today. Uh, the COVID relief bill did a tremendous job lifting a lot of people out of poverty and helping to stabilize a lot of people's incomes and stuff. And so it's a wonderful piece of economic policy that happened amazingly during the Trump administration that the Trump people and the Republicans will never, ever, ever take credit for, but it's arguably the best piece of policy that's happened in the last six years or eight years. Like, <laughs> so it's certainly the best piece of policy that's happened since Obamacare. Um, and one could argue, depending on how much uh, you're getting out of the Obamacare setup, uh, probably better than Obamacare. Um, I'm not trying to start a fight over that, but, uh, you know, we're talking about. All right. Got to talk about it. So you've probably seen, I have to imagine, if you listen to Don't Worry About the Government, you probably read a fair amount of online news. You're familiar with Nicki Minaj's cousins, brothers, friends, testicles. Um, I mean, you're not familiar with them. Like, we don't know them. We don't know. And we, and we shouldn't judge because we, we don't know them like that. But they appear to be beleaguered, besieged, if you will. Uh, these, these, are, these are worn and weathered testicles. Um, it, because according to Nicki Minaj, guy was living his life, living his best life, about to get married, in love, and he got the vaccine, 
He didn't pray on it. He could have prayed on it. He didn't pray on it. And then his testicles became debilitatingly swollen. And uh, that you hate seeing that. You hate hearing about it. You even just hate reading about it on Twitter. And I think it's great that Tucker Carlson decided to devote the entire week of his highly rated cable news show to doing segments on Nicki Minaj's brother's friend's cousin's, no, cousin's brother's friend's testicles. Um, or cousin's brother. I don't, I don't know. Oh, it, does, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. No, it does. It does. He's a person. He has real problems. But the testicle situation, I think, actually does illustrate something that I've had a hard time really discussing on the show. I'm not necessarily gun shy about talking about it, but I like want to talk about it in a way that is is not conjectural or just armchairy because it can be a bit of a sensitive subject. So I'm in Massachusetts last week for my grandmother's funeral. Rest in peace, Grandma. Love you every day. Uh, you are definitely one of the reasons why I am a dude who does political talk radio, so uh, this show goes out to you. Love you, Grandma. Uh, and I'm up in Massachusetts for the funeral, and my family members and stuff are talking about how in the state, you know, the state vaccination rates are actually kind of like the G7 America thing, where like most of the states around like 60 something percent vaccination rate. Except for Hamden County, where we were at, where it's close to like 53%. And everyone it, who, you know, in my family and stuff, you know, they're like, well, we're discussing why that is and what's going on there. And Hamden County has Holyoke, Massachusetts, which has a majority Latino population, largely Puerto Rican. Um, I think uh, when I was chatting with Cody uh, the other day, the infamous Cody, I, I think we came up when we were looking at it, it was like 48% like Puerto Rican. Like, I mean, it's been a big demographic shift here over the last 40, 50 years, you know, old timers up there. will talk about that kind of thing. And Springfield, Massachusetts has always had a heavy African American population and Hamden County, the County where these two cities are like the, some of the largest cities uh, in, in the area, like East Long Meadows in there. It's got 16,000 people. Whereas like Holyoke has, 150,000 people, which is probably kind of small to some of y'all, but like, you know, compared to a town of 16,000, you know, it's like 10 times the size. So, uh, it, it's, they make up a large part of the population. So it's like, what is going on with people in Holyoke and Springfield? What is, is what is it about these places that are, you know, and this is where it gets sticky. They are democratic voters. If they vote, they're going to vote democratic. Um, they might not vote. They might not think there's anything into the system for themselves. And then they're not vaxxed. And, I don't know. I think that sort of says something about the, the type of people we might hope to try to get engaged or whatever sometimes, right? Um, so, like, the question is, like, why aren't those people getting vaxxed? And it does seem to be a different narrative than why do people who we talk about much more frequently on the right, the, the ex Trump, not the ex Trumpers, like they're still Trumping. Um, but like, why are these, why are right wing anti-vaxxers so ravenous and frothing and passionately anti-vax? Like that, that's not that much of a mystery. Like you don't have to struggle all that hard about that. You flip on Tucker Carlson, 
he keeps having people like Scott Atlas on and other people. You look at Fox News, and despite their network having internal practices where everyone's got to be vaccinated, on the news network itself, they have Vaxo skeptics all the time on there. You look at Newsmax, and you look at One American News Network, and it's not a mystery why the right is not vaccinated. But there is a smaller percentage uh, left of center among what would be Biden's electorate who are not getting vaccinated. And there is, I think, I think there hasn't been enough scrutiny as to what's going on there. But also, if you're asking me to kind of sit in my armchair and reflect as to what do you think's going on there, Chris, um, I, I think the, the answer is really kind of buried right here in this Nicki Minaj's cousin's friend's brother's testicle story. There is, an, unlike the right, where you have Tucker Carlson, there is an informal network of, one, celebrities and people who are not fucking experts about anything um, who get elevated to levels far beyond their relevancy. Like, you know, however you feel about Cardi B or Nicki Minaj or those type of people, um, they probably don't need to be major players in our political discourse. Like, they're not... And I'm not saying shut up and sing or whatever, but like I do think that if you don't have your facts on point and you aren't carrying yourself with a certain level of seriousness, and that's not this is not like a civility scold, but like Nicki Minaj isn't helping the discourse, for lack of a better term, by coming out here and talking about her cousin's friend's brother's testicles. Insofar as she's even, you know, making something worth discoursing on, I think she speaks to the fact that there is a real power of like urban legend and that sort of thing going on on our side that you get, you know, oh, well, I've been hearing this sort of thing. Well, you you don't know, but they are doing the thing with it. Uh, I'm reminded of that Saturday Night Live skit, uh, Black Jeopardy, where they have the white guy on it, uh, Clem, who's like a Trump guy. Um, this, of course, is years before the coronavirus sort of thing. Like This week with the Nicki Minaj and Tucker Carlson thing, we saw the horseshoe kind of come together. We saw like the Black Jeopardy with Tom Hanks skit sort of come together here, where the week ends with Nicki Minaj retweeting Tucker Carlson clips talking about Nicki Minaj um, and putting Tucker Carlson, a guy who is very clearly a white nationalist sort of fellow. um, And there's articles written on that, but I, I mean, really, I would just point you in the direction of the segment he did back in 2017 or 2018 on gypsies coming to a small town in Pennsylvania, acting like it was a national international news story. And I mean, that's just trading in, some of the classic white nationalist tropes in Europe. Um, like it, it, What we saw with Minaj and Carlson this week is the anti-vax horseshoe theory. And so insofar as it actually put a face to that and like a discreet moment where we can talk about what's happening on our own side of the aisle, by our own side, I'm saying, I guess, among the Biden electorate or any of the people that Biden might hope to be getting, I think that that was useful 
But outside of that, I, I don't, it, I mean, it was great for comedians too. Lord knows it got me, it gave me a chance to say the word testicles a bunch of times on the show today. And what fun that was. What fun. Moving on. Next, we have a story. Let's talk about Millie first. Uh, we'll talk about this story with Bob Woodward. Um, I can't take claim for this joke, but it's so good that I just have to open up the segment with it. I heard what Bob Woodward's new book is about, and I, I found out what the title is. Um, the story is going to be about a journalist who sees abhorrent acts time and again and bravely sits on them and waits until he writes a new book rather than move the discourse and then call it journalism. The title of Woodward's new book, this autobiography, will be called Complicit. Bob Woodward is a skis. And I felt like this with his books during the Trump administration where he was sitting on clear, important points of evidence and things that would have moved the conversation, the national media narrative would have changed coverage, would have changed maybe the way things were being investigated. And rather than actually reporting them out, he was just sitting on them for his little book. Um, there are other issues with the way that he writes his books too, where he basically tells the story of the story that people tell him. This is to say, Woodward's books very often sound like the person who talked the most to him. Um, so you, know, you have the ability to move Woodward in that way. And I mean, I guess that's sort of true regardless. Like uh, I was watching a documentary on something else this week and you know, there were people involved in the story being told that uh, chose not to be on the show. And, you know, when you do that, you do allow everyone else to tell your own story. In this case, we're going back to Millie here. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff called China twice in the final months of the Trump administration to reassure them that Trump had no plans to attack China. This is according to Peril, a new book by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, who I guess is going to be working for that Bob Woodward mantle here. Things may look unsteady, said Mark Milley uh, to General Li Zhucheng of China on January 8th, two days after supporters attacked the Capitol to try to stop the certification of his election loss. Quote, but that's the nature of democracy, General Li. We are 100% steady. Everything's fine. But democracy can be sloppy sometimes. Milley was also reportedly so concerned that Trump could go rogue that he convened a secret meeting later that day with senior military officials to remind them that, quote, these strict procedures were explicitly designed to avoid inadvertent mistakes or accident or nefarious, unintentional, illegal, immoral, unethical launchings of the world's most dangerous weapons. And he added, quote, I am part of that procedure. Following the revelations, Trump called for, quote, dumbass Milley to be, quote, arrested for, quote, treason. Meanwhile, the White House says that Biden has complete confidence in Milley. Oof. This one's a complicated story, too, if, if we are being completely honest here. Because what Milley's doing here, especially with the specific timing, it's defensible in a way, isn't it? Trump absolutely called down the thunder on the Capitol that day. He spoke at that rally. Hallie went by, fist up in the air. Hell yeah, baby, let's do it. Let's have fun with this. Um, I, absolutely, 
Trump was complicit in the smashing of the Capitol. In terms of the transition of power, yeah, Biden was going to be in office in a few days. But I sort of read Milley calling China as Milley going, I am currently the adult in the room here and do not think you are going to catch me slipping, sir. And you almost want to applaud that. You kind of do. You kind of do. I, I mean, if you're a Republican partisan or like a conservative, uh, you would never, you would never, because Trump, everyone said that Trump was so bad, but he, was, he wasn't that bad. Uh, you know, it wasn't that bad. Uh, but like, you know, for like the rest of us who watched what happened on January 6th and were like, holy shit, like, dude, he was ambivalent to supporting supportive i mean like when he tells mike pence don't certify this and we're not friends anymore beyond being like childish and petulant it's very clear what donald trump wanted out of that day and he would have been very okay i mean if if a lawmaker had been killed he would have been okay with it come on you know it you know it uh, and don't don't kid yourself especially if it had been quote unquote the right one. Oh, he would have loved it he would have loved it uh, so I get it. I get it. At the same time, we have civilian control of the military for a reason. And it is not okay to have these military leaders freelancing, even when we have an idiot man child as the president. I think that it is okay for these leaders, if they so desire, to come forward and say in their humble professional opinion, the president is not fit for the job that he is tasked with, and this is why they are resigning. And saying it in loud and not on clear terms, I think that that should have happened far more often than it did, uh, which was basically never, during the Trump administration. I think that sends a very clear message um, and doesn't allow for like any sort of ambiguity of, oh, you know, I want to go home and be with my family, you know, that, that kind of crap. Um, I, I think that Milley making himself the de facto president here temporarily, not that's that's overstating it, too. Um, he shouldn't have done this. Uh, it's it, it, like on one hand, I applaud him for doing this. On the other hand. I think you don't talk to your Chinese counterpart unless you need to talk to your Chinese counterpart. So the real question here is, did the military brass really think that Trump left us so vulnerable to a Chinese attack that we needed to make some sort of meaningful overture to the Chinese to go, hey, we're not like we're not totally lost here. Um, I mean, I, that's one way of reading Millie calling China and saying, hey, we have no plans to attack you. Parenthetically, it's a, it's implied yet, right? <laughs> Currently, we don't have any plans. That could always change. I did just say attack in China in the same sentence, so that's a thing. I don't know, man. I don't know. I kind of think... I don't know if Millie needs to resign... Well, he does. He he does. He because he needs to resign over the Afghanistan stuff too. And I'm not even talking about the drone strike. Like the drone strike is bad, right? Like the admitting that you know there was this drone strike on August 29 that killed 10 civilians and seven children. Um, 
Frank McKenzie, head of U.S. Command, probably needs to resign. Um, they, this whole the decision was quote made in the earnest belief that it would prevent the imminent threat on our forces at the evacuees at the airport. Like, okay, the hell with that. Um, no, there needs to be some resignations over that. Absolutely. Um, those those are all pretty pretty abysmal situations. I got Millie though, man. I don't know. I don't know. It's so hard to defend a general going over the head of the president, especially when sort of my takeaway on the Afghanistan war, uh, for those of you who have not heard Gaspacho, it's like episode 532, I believe. Uh, my takeaway on the Afghanistan war is that the generals lied to us and sort of like usurped civilian command. They snookered, look, okay, yeah, Cheney and Rummy and those guys wanted the war, absolutely. But time and time again, David Petraeus and all these other, like, you know, McRaven and all these other people would keep saying, we're turning the corner, every one of these surges is working, trust us, trust us, hey, Commander-in-Chief, please listen to us. And they'd grouse if a Democratic president, you know, the only one was a Democrat, I like if Obama didn't listen to them, they'd all grouse and moan about, oh, he doesn't listen to us. You know, he shouldn't. He, sh he actually should have listened to you less, if anything. Um, to, to the extent that Obama didn't listen to them, I liked that. Um, because they should be listening to him. Um, and Millie is kind of part of this tradition. Look, if you don't think you can serve and execute this dude's orders... Don't execute them. Um, leave the vacuum there. They go, oh, I don't want to leave, you know, this vacuum of continuity there. Look, especially when it comes to the nuclear cert stuff, like you can't just like plug a new dude in there. I think even Trump's sort of hamstrung on how much he can do to like immediately plug someone in. I think whoever would replace Millie would have been perfectly competent. And if they weren't, it's another organizational issue for these brass in the military to address. I... I'm really unsympathetic to Millie. I, I, I get how Trump's actions on January 6th open up the door for a broader discussion of what is and is not acceptable given those circumstances. But it was also only 12 days. It was also only 12 days. Yeah. Yeah. Screw Bob Woodward. Screw Millie. Screw Trump. I, I mean, really, like, you know, here's the other thing. Millie doesn't have to make these calls if Trump doesn't try to run a multi-month campaign to reverse the results of the election. So whatever you want to say about Millie, and Republicans are really enjoying this discourse, and I know I have Republican friends and family who like to listen to this show because they, they appreciate that I give voice to this. Okay, and I have now. Now let us consider the fact that that happened because Donald Trump would not admit that he lost in a resounding way in November and instead perpetuated a myth for months that there was a magical national treasure style secret button in the halls of Congress that if the unwashed masses just stormed the Capitol steps and Mike Pence just grew a real strength of character and fortitude, uh, if those things happened, maybe just maybe Donald Trump would still be president. This is to say 
that the general is reacting to circumstances that are maybe almost exclusive to Donald Trump, but certainly unique to a Donald Trump personality type as the president. A more standard American politician does not lead a storming of the Capitol. How do you know this, Chris? I know this because it hasn't happened before. We have had other politicians who have had real issues with their character. George Bush, Richard Nixon, these are people who did questionable things in pursuit of the office. They did not lead a storming on the Capitol that could have ended in violence. There is a qualitative difference between those types of politicians and Donald Trump. And the generals know this. They also know this from four years of trying to work with the guy and feebly trying to get this guy to read daily briefings and realizing that their best chance of maybe getting him to Osmo some information is creating pictures and charts because all the words, they're too wordy. He doesn't like them. I understand where Millie is coming from with a lot of these frustrations and this sense that they're the adults in the room. The real issue here is how the adults in the room chose to act. The president, even if he is a man-child, is not a man-child. He is the president. He's an idiot man-child in his personal dealings, but... At the time, he is the president, and there is a way that that office works and ought to work, and Millie disregarded that, and that really should face deep scrutiny and deep criticism, and should be the end of Millie's career. And that's going to be the end of this episode of Don't Worry About the Government. You can follow us on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify. That's where you'd subscribe to get more of the show. At DWATG is where I am at on Twitter. Go to patreon.com slash DWATG and support this show. If you like the dispatch model, think of it like this. It's 33 cents per dispatch. You can't beat that with a stick. It's because it's digital and you don't have a digital stick. I have all the digital sticks. And if you sub up at patreon.com slash DWATG, I will tell you where all the digital sticks are. You've got to sub up for a few months, though. I real, real talk, though. I appreciate all of the patron feedback um, because that really is a big driver in this episode. This episode is a byproduct of feedback that I get from listeners who support this show and trying to make a better show, a better sounding show, a different format. People want more monologuing. I still want to do some conversations. Hopefully, we found a way to meet in the middle here. Uh, you know, uh, this is an interactive process it's that's how a small business works man and you guys supporting the show means a lot to me so my pizza's done the show is done i want to thank you all so much for listening and until the next one bye 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 bye, bye. bye. bye.